Hi. Hello, 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 hello. I am Allison Benedict, Slate's executive editor. I'm also a woman of Slate. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here with you guys and even more excited to be here with my wonderful colleagues, some just smart, funny, sane women podcasters and writers who I have the pleasure of working with every day and you're going to have the pleasure of being with tonight. So now I'm thrilled to bring on um, my wonderful colleague, Mary Harris. Mary is the host of Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? Yeah, totally. Uh, If you listen to What Next, you love Mary. Uh, If you don't listen to What Next, you must subscribe to What Next. I was thinking of having a moment where, like, I made everybody pull out their phones and subscribe, but I thought that might be awkward or a little bit too much pressure, but I think after tonight you'll definitely want to. Uh, So without further ado, Mary, come on out. Hi, I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of What Next?, I am super psyched to see you here for ladies' night, essentially. Like, ladies on the stage, on the TV, everywhere you look, a lady. We're going to watch the debate. We're going to watch the debate. And I have, like, a a question for you guys, which is, are you sure you want to watch the debate? Are you absolutely sure? Because I have to say... I've been feeling kind of triggered by the politics. And like, it doesn't have to be, I've been talking about it for a year, right, on my show. It doesn't have to be like on my show or at Slate or at work. It's like everywhere. Like, do do you guys go to Whole Foods at 3rd and 3rd over there ever? That like, you know, Brooklyn hellscape. (laughs) So I was there the other day and I just started feeling this anxiety. And I was like, why, why am I feeling like this? Is it the fact that I'm like fighting with someone over something called mango cheeks? Actually a thing they sell there, it's dried mango. Is it the soundtrack? Is it because you know, like they have like a lot of spin doctors, black crows, it feels like 1994 playlist situation in there. And I was like, why, why am I feeling like jittery? And I realized, I was like, this could be what like a Pete Buttigieg presidency feels like a little bit. <laughs> I just feel like I have this overarching anxiety. And so we're here to just like hug it out today. We're gonna just, we're gonna do it. I wanna welcome these amazing, amazing ladies who are gonna join me. First, Slate's matriarch. I'm gonna call her Slate's matriarch. (laughs) She just gave me this look like, nope, no you're not. Nope, Dahlia Lithwick, amazing. Sorry, I did that. Sorry, dog. And, and I took her mic, which is like really bad form. Next, I'm going to introduce you to the woman who revealed the true identity of Pierre Delecto, Ashley Feinberg. Please come out. Okay, next, I'm super excited to welcome one of our newest reporters at Slate. She reports on race, politics, health disparities. Julia Craven, come on out. Hey. Hey. Hi. So like not much has been happening, so this is gonna be simple. I feel like part of the anxiety I'm feeling is not just the election and what's at stake. It's like the volume of stuff. I joked with someone who was like being waterboarded by the news every day. Like you walk in like, ah, and like today, like just today, hours and hours of hearings 
They might still be going on. Uh, who knows? <laughs> Who's to know? Uh, we also found out Hunter Biden has like a baby, a new baby. You know, it's just yeah, all officially. sorts of news all That's over messy. the place. So let's start with today. We had impeachment hearings. Yeah. You watched. What's your setup, Dahlia, when you're watching these things? You got like three screens. How, multi, you know? Most days I'm at home and my, <laughs> my husband is in the kitchen and he's like, turn it down, turn it down. Like he can't hear Devin Nunes for even a second. Um, the second Devin Nunes starts talking, my husband, like I hear the door, boom, Homer Simpson, like he can't. Um, today I actually uh, went all the way out to the Bronx and watched with friends just because we could and we actually did have like mimosas and uh, we were just completely slurry drunk by 1030 this morning. <laughs> endorse yeah. endorse that so hey, what, what do you want to tell the folks about what you saw today you've been watching all of these so when you watched what did you think yeah I mean I, I just thought Sondland was fascinating I have never it was like John Dean if John Dean was having the best time like he was like <laughs> this is Awesome, and I was like, and everybody would like tell their jokes, and Sondland would be like, <laughs> and I'd be like, dude, you just implicated yourself in a crime. And he's like, <laughs> so I, it was a very perplexing. Like his affect was so mismatched with the severity of like, I think you just threw like the president and Mulvaney and Pence and like Pompeo under the bus, and you're like, <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> the, other th- <laughs> the other thing that happened was that President Trump came out with these documents that I'm going to ask you about, Ashley, because you yes. specialize in, like, solving political mysteries. The very, very stupid ones, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we saw President Trump come out, and he's like, these are my notes where I say, <laughs> no quid pro quo. This is the final word from the President of the United States. So and when- I don't know twice. Yes, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah. yeah. So what did you think when you saw that? Uh, I mean, I think that it is astounding that he cannot remember a series of four words, like, rearranged <laughs> five times. Uh, I mean, the, the weirdest part to me, though, is that him writing down the words, I don't know, I don't know, twice, mean that someone had to dictate to him, this is what you need to say. You need to say, I don't know, and he writes it down, and then again, I don't know. Like, I, I would... <laughs> saw off my left arm to be in the room while that conversation was happening. That's because I cannot possibly imagine who has the responsibility of, like, breaking down these, like, the most simple sentences you can possibly say into something that he can remember in the half a second it takes for him to look at the page, like, up at the camera. I mean, the other thing is that you did this reporting where you you did a lot of fact-finding and you said, listen, maybe it's not that President Trump is mentally ill. Well, he is, but it's in, in, in addition to that. But maybe he's blind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Would you care to present the evidence briefly? Yeah, what I can remember, because I've uh, lost my memory over the course of the past three years, he has, for years, uh, refused to wear glasses. He's made, like, offhand jokes about how basically thinks glasses are emasculating or uh, he, they think, make people look weak, and uh, which he does not like to appear as and uh if you will look at like teleprompters from like the obama era like it's a moderately sized screen with like a normal size font and if you look at trump teleprompters uh whenever they happen to take a photo of it it's uh, like a fucking like a widescreen with like two words per like sign and 
yeah, so I mean, it's, it's very, and he's also, what, he's like 100 years old, like it's very clear that he just like has very poor eyesight, and there's, like, there was, uh, when, when he mixed up Toledo after like a shooting, like that, right. like, which, it, it was astounding, like, because the city, he said, like, just didn't fit in anywhere unless he, like, couldn't really see the letters and saw, like, a T and, like, kind of was, like, well, maybe that means Toledo, it's in Ohio, and then, like, just, like, a lot of, like, weird mistakes make a lot more sense in that context. <laughs> okay, so today my show was all about Pete Buttigieg and how he's the front runner in Iowa. I'm sure he is going to step out on the stage and just be savaged, but the question is who will savage him? Ladies, do you have thoughts on this? Julia, do you have thoughts on this? You know I do. (laughs) (laughs) So I did see some reporting that Kamala Harris was open to going after him, so I think that's going to be very interesting, especially since they're both going after the black vote in South Carolina, and one of them has a better chance of getting it than the other (laughs) one does. Well, and she had, like, the most momenty moment right, of the last few debates? I feel like it didn't last. The moment, no, you're going to disagree. Okay, tell me. Well, which moment are you talking about? I'm talking about the, the moment with the bus, with the buses. with. Yeah, that was, that was pretty short-lived. Um, and then she ended up backtracking and saying, right. well, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't have the federal government do it. And, and so, you know, like that, that, yeah, that was very short-lived. It was a blip. Um, and she is also polling in the single digits with black voters in South Carolina, but she's not at zero. So <laughs> she still has a better, and she's black, so she has a better shot. Now, Dahlia, you told me backstage you haven't been watching the debates. Can you tell me your philosophy here? Um, principally that I'm lazy. <laughs> and uh, I'm totally overwhelmed with the impeachment stuff. But I, my, my f- philosophy has been that at this juncture, I feel as though we could just pick, with one or two exceptions, any one of those nominees. And I would be happy with them because the alternative, as Ashley points out, is a crazy person. And so I think that some of the tribalism and the internecine warfare and the purity tests and the digging in and the like, now I hate your candidate and I will not vote for them has plagued us in many cycles before. And so my own preference is we should have done this in two months, like maybe with like wrestling or, you know. That uh, is how like Canada does it. Yeah, like no, other countries Canada, are like, you got like a yeah. hundred days. Yeah, no, in Canada we say, sorry, 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 sorry. And we pick the person and then we're good. <laughs> and then the next day they run for prime minister. And I think it's like highly functional as compared to like what feels like, you know, a year of televised I mean, it is that. It's like two years of... Yeah. yeah. No, and it's, it's such a... Like, it, it, in, in some seriousness, it just does seem to dig us in. And then we start flouncing around saying, like, we hate everybody else. And I just think this is not a great year for flounciness. Like, this is a year for purposive... Um, I will knock on doors worse late to allow me to lock, knock on doors. Um, but I would <laughs> knock on doors for virtually anyone here, and so let's get it done. Yeah. I mean, the last debate, um, Mayor Pete really had the knives out for Elizabeth Warren. I feel like this is the debate. Maybe Elizabeth Warren will have the knives out for Mayor Pete. We'll see. But you covered Elizabeth Warren. You went on the trail with her. I wonder how 
you think she's going to be thinking through this particular moment, given where she is, given the fact that someone like Mayor Pete is saying, this is a race between you and me? Yeah, I mean, I just think there's this burgeoning narrative, and I sort of defer to my colleagues on whether it's true, that is that he's starting to kneecap the women in this race, and that mm. he's been... Um, sort of slowly and in, in some cases um, artlessly starting to um, uh, sideline them and that I think um, Amy Klobuchar has been you know, pretty uh, vocal about the fact that, that uh, he's getting every sort of extra boost and uh, there was this like rather horrifying poll yesterday that surfaced about you know like still 59% of like American men don't feel comfortable with a woman president or some such. So I, I think there is this sort of underlying under the surface um, story that is, you know, is this gonna happen again where we all collectively make the decision that women can't win and therefore Pete is a good alternative. And I just think that anxiety, it's, it's burbling there. And so whether Elizabeth Warren, you know, turns around and slugs him in the mouth, um, I, I, don't, I don't think it goes that way. But I do think that um, there is a sense that the women uh, in this race are, are, are feeling frustrated about this. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because I feel like, you know, we're about to have Thanksgiving, right? I feel like I should <laughs> go to my family and basically be like, let's talk about women in power. And like, Let's, let's just have a talk about it. Because I've gotten to these conversations with my relatives where um, my mom's take is, Mayor Pete is really cute. Totally true, true on its face. And then I've, I've had other women relatives who are just like, I just don't know that we're, it's like they get a face. It's like, this, it's the same face every time. Like, I don't know that we're ready. I'm like, oh, we need to have a little bit of a like conversation here. Uh, anyway, uh, Ashley. Yes. So you look at the optics of these things a lot, the optics of the debates mm -hmm. and how things look. And all of these people tonight are going to be looking for a viral moment. Is that a thing that is achievable? Or is it just when you get on the stage, the best you can do is be boring? I don't think the best you can do is be boring because like that, I don't think that's proven well in the past. But I also don't think that these viral moments that have happened have really had any tangible effect, like long term, like it will have a short Twitter cycle, people make a lot of jokes and like uh, people on CNN, like Chris Elizabeth like has a bunch of shit he says, but like none of it like really matters in the long run. I think, mm -hmm. except for the one thing that has made a difference I think is uh, people hammering Elizabeth Warren on her uh, healthcare policy like has tangibly affected I think how she eventually rolled that out and that was less of a viral moment as much as like kind of a slow accumulation of piling onto a certain thing. Yeah. I mean when I asked you about the various candidates digital strategies you were like pay attention to Mayor Pete. Why? So one thing I found not his official campaign because all the accounts are very adamant that it is not affiliated with the campaign but uh, some it has to be some super PAC or something that is creating like hundreds of like hockey moms for Pete and uh, central Missourians like slightly northwest for Pete and uh, people who like bears for Pete like it, it, is, it is I found gardeners for Pete today there was a gardener for Pete there's there's, uh, there's there a lot of moms for Pete accounts which are all, every mom needs something but uh, <laughs> it, it's just it's uh, other campaigns have this but like the their profile pictures are all the same like 
like well done like style of art like it, it's very clearly like some sort of initiative with like each account has like a thousand followers like it, it, I, I don't know what they're hoping to achieve or it, it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Dahlia, what is something that you think the last debates, I guess you haven't been watching the debates, I can't ask you this. I can't ask you, I had this question. What do you think is something, I'll ask you Julia, what do you think is something they've been ignoring at the previous debates that you think that they should be bringing up tonight, the moderators? Race. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so race isn't always ignored, right? Like sometimes it comes up. But when it comes up, I remember in one of the... There's been three debates? Am I making that up? I have no idea. Four. <laughs> 85. And then right. there, were, we were, there were like the dual debates. So anyway. Dual debate. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. Um, so I do remember in one of the earlier debates that there was a question about reparations. But it was a blip. It was like very short-lived. And it was like, all right, like three of y'all answered this. Like, let's keep it moving. And race hasn't really come back up substantively since then. Hmm. Um, And I think that was actually the debate with the busing moment. And it just hasn't cycled back. But again, I would love for it to come up tonight, especially considering that the primaries are coming up. South Carolina is a major state. And... Voters are about to start winnowing the field and they're about to start picking the candidate. And I mean, you do not have a Democratic Party without black voters. And of course, (laughs) I mean, she's not wrong. You don't have a Democratic Party without black voters. And so I think one of the things that's very important for people to remember, and this is actually something that Andrew Gillum said, was that policies that help black people are actually policies that help everybody because when you reach out to the most marginalized among us, you're gonna lift up everybody. And with that in mind, instead of treating race and the question of it and really digging into it substantively as something that's black specific, as something that's this group specific, it really should be looked at more holistically. And I just don't think that broadly we do that in politics. And now I'm about to start ranting, so I'm gonna shut up. No. So I'm super curious, I'm super curious, what's the question you want to hear? Because I feel like questions are always so awkward and asked poorly. Like, what's the right question to ask these people? I don't think they have to be, I think it's awkward because we make it awkward. It's like race doesn't have to be an awkward topic. It could just be an honest one. But I think... I think like when we really start digging into it, it's, it's something that makes people uncomfortable. And people don't want to be uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be uncomfortable. Like high key, I'm cold right now on stage. <laughs> and like, so like that's making me uncomfortable, right? And like, I don't want to be cold. Like I wish I brought a sweater with me. And so not that race is comparable to me being cold. Like, don't, 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 don't misconstrue me on Twitter. Um, So I think that it's just something that makes people uncomfortable. So it doesn't really have to be awkward. And I think one thing I would like for them to ask is to just really dig into the plans that people have presented about systemic racism, Mm -hmm. like the Douglas plan and Elizabeth Warren's plan. And he's not on stage tonight, but even Castro's plan. No, he didn't make make it. Sad teardrop. Um, (laughs) So I think one question that we could ask is, Historically, policies have not necessarily uplifted large swaths of people. Policy has not eliminated systemic racism. Why will yours do that? How will yours do that? So that's the question that I would love to hear. 
I think that's why I will never moderate a debate because I would ask that question and I don't think anyone really has an answer for that. Yeah. I mean, have you looked at the Douglas plan and like what Pete's like looking to do and the various plans that are out there and do you have thoughts on them? I think wanting to improve credit access is a pretty good piece of it. And I mean, I think that his plan is well thought out. I think most of the plans are pretty well thought out, but you know, plans are just plans. Yeah. The rollout's been awkward. Very awkward. Yeah, and it's like he was faking endorsements and shit. That's that's not a good look. Not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, ladies, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to welcome Virginia Heffernan to the stage, host of Trumpcast. I am now going to bring to the stage Christina Cotterucci and Nicole Perkins. Hi. Thank you, Virginia. You guys have a... Um, Faces for not radio, you know, like yeah, thank you. perfect for a, li- a live show tonight. <laughs> thank you. I would also you. be remiss if I didn't start this panel by noting that Nicole and I host our own podcast together. Yes, I do. The way, the way, exactly, and that is You'll well all worth tuning I'm sure. They are not just writers at Slate, but podcasters, and yeah, check out the waves. So I think I may be alone in thinking that I am over the moon about the Democratic field of candidates. I think they're fantastic. I love hearing them talk. It may be because the show I host is about a different candidate for president, but they all seem extremely engaging and bright and interesting. And Julian Castro talking about the details of immigration law, Kamala Harris reminding us of uh, desegregation, just one after another, Elizabeth Warren saying anything that starts this. So (laughs) Let me explain this to you. Walking us through the Mueller report. I mean, these are fantastic candidates. So, in my view. So, and basically, I think that any one of them could win if Trump doesn't cheat. So, I think the conversation is about what we're learning in the impeachment hearings. And that may just be a way to bring things back to the subject that interests me most, which is is what the president's demise is going to look like and when it's going to come. But... (laughs) I, you must be just envisioning that every yes. day. On no, Trump exactly. Cast. It's just very pleasant. Um, my happy place. But I wonder if you all agree with me or don't that impeachment is a kitchen table issue. We're hearing people all across the country shout very uncivilly and in a way that I would never want any of you to shout, lock him up. Mm-hmm. Just when they go low, we are now going just as low. And we're hearing, you know, that 51% of Americans want Trump not just impeached, but removed from office. And 70% think he did something wrong. Democrats like to imagine that all Americans just want to talk about health care and groceries or however they imagine that, le- that average Joes live, that, that Johnny Lunchbucket and Sally Housecoat still live. They're just trying to make ends meet or whatever. But I think they're talking about, I, I don't know, I think they're talking about impeachment. What about you? I mean, I agree in part because everyone loves drama. <laughs> you know that because Donald Trump got elected. Yep. I also think the 
concept of somebody breaking the law and getting away with it is extremely easy to access and it enrages people. I also was surprised to see when a majority of Americans started supporting impeachment because Democrats in the center had spent so long telling us that they couldn't launch an impeachment inquiry because it would alienate so many Americans. So like, love to see them proven wrong on that. I also think, you know, people might not be able to follow the bribery and extortion of the Ukraine situation, but like, they've seen House of Cards. They know how this works. Like, they know what it looks like when somebody does bad things and gets away with them. And they also know Rudy Giuliani and have watched him, like, take a turn for the worse in such an extreme way that I feel like people can use his character and his demeanor as a little barometer of where America is headed. I think that's right. Yeah, Nicole, what about you? Yeah, yes and no. Like, people... You know, I talked to my mom and my sister, and they're very much um, happy to see something finally happening. But I don't know. Everyone that I talk to are just kind of like, I'll believe it when I see it. So there have been all these different points where people have been like, now we've got them. Now we've got them. No, no, this time we've got them. No, it's going to be this time for sure. And it's like, um, okay, we're still seeing him in the White House. We're still seeing his Sharpie all over, you know, pages and stuff. Um, So they're very... Most of the people that I talk to are frustrated and just kind of like, whatever, you know, if it happens, it happens. We want it to happen, but no one's really doing much to make it happen. Do you think that before we can let the healing begin, do you think it's better for the country to vote him out or to see him removed? I would love to see America vote Donald Trump out because I think it will be hard for him to even accept a legitimate electoral defeat. I think he'll have to be dragged out of the White House kicking and screaming. I don't think he'll relinquish the office easily. And I think the Republicans have done such a great job I gotta hand it to them, of uh, spinning the impeachment hearings as like a witch hunt. And, you know, this is just Democrats with Trump derangement syndrome. And I, if, you know, if Trump's election was the backlash to Barack Obama's years in office, I would hate to see what happens when Donald Trump is removed through impeachment, what the backlash to that would look like. At the same time, he deserves to be impeached and removed from office because he broke the law. So I'm a little torn. I like your idea that even if he's voted out, he would have to be forcibly removed from office. Oh my God, yeah. one way or another, he's not leaving on his own. Yeah, he's getting purple walked out of the White House. I I agree. I I would rather see us vote him out. I think that he would not be able to handle that on an emotional ego level. Um, I think, you know, like seeing him get booed and the look on his face when he realized, oh, they're booing me. I mean, you're not... You're You're giddy. (laughs) You are giddy at the thought. I mean, you're not supposed to be happy for for someone's downfall, but he has been just a miserable experience in my life, you know, and I just want him to suffer more than what he, you know, just, I just want him to suffer a little bit. Exactly. Let's let's hear it for suffering for the President of the United States. I would, I think it would say something nice about America if we could do that. You know, like as much as I hate what Donald Trump has done to America, I hate just as much the fact that America was able to vote him into office. And I know, you know, he didn't win the popular vote and blah, blah, blah. But still the fact that like so many people voted for him, you know, I'd love to see us learn something from this experience. Yeah. 
So as you all know, I was up here on election night. Maybe some other people were here. And if so, there's a little trauma center um, <laughs> right behind the green room um, where I think Dara Williams and I hugged each other and sobbed. But from that night forward, I think there have been two parallel stories told about Trump's victory. One is that there's deeply wrong, something deeply wrong with America, an America that could, even in an election with all kinds of problems, have voted him into office. The fact that even one person voted for Donald Trump is appalling. Um, and, um, or maybe there's something deeply troubled in a way that we can sympathize with about all the people in diners with chewing on nails. Okay, that's another story. Some Normcore media has told us that story over and over again. And then there's a third story that, um, that has, is the one that, frankly, has preoccupied Trumpcast, which is the story of Trump's cheating in the election, his illegitimacy as a president. And my former colleague at Trumpcast, the co-host, Jamel Bowie, who's now at the New York Times, and I used to have a conversation about whether focusing on the Russia investigation was like asking for a do-over. It was like asking for an opportunity not to confront American racism, American misogyny, American social problems that gave rise, legitimately gave rise to Trump. And, you know, I kept saying, well, I kept thinking Russia did exploit these social problems in fanning the flames and breaking us all up, but they were there to exploit. And, you know, I wonder which road both of you have gone down in thinking about the president. I mean, does... Does his illegitimacy sit front and center with you? Or do you generally think that he's an expression of problems in America? <laughs> I mean, I like to think in, in terms of, you know, what should we be focusing our attentions on? I like to think that we've found ourselves an America that can do both. You know, we can focus on the yeah. illegitimacy and we can focus on the conditions that put Trump into office. But I think the fact that people were even in a position to be exploited by those fake Facebook mm -hmm. posts about Black Lives Matter or whatever um, that, you know, Russian operatives put on Facebook. Um, and, and also the fact that, like, there are a lot of people who I think it was surprising to a lot of people, some people it wasn't a surprise to, that so many people got animated by his misogyny, his racism, mm -hmm. his animus toward immigrants. Um, I, like looking at the way people acted at Trump rallies, for instance, mm -hmm. like that wasn't Russia. Those weren't, you know, crisis mm -hmm. actors hired mm -hmm. by Russians. Yeah. Those were actual people excited about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, stick with me. Um, <laughs> so there used to be this little show called the Jeffersons, right? <laughs> and there was an episode where George Jefferson went to, um, I think it was like a Klan meeting or there were like this, you know, like this white power meeting or something like that. And the guy leading it, this man leading it, had a heart attack. And George had to figure out, do I give him CPR or do I just walk away? So of course he gave him CPR. And when the man comes to and realizes that George has saved his life, he says, you should have let me die, right? So... I am not surprised that Trump gets into the office because that, has, that is what I have been witnessing all of my life, something where uh, some white people would rather die than to be rescued by someone black or to see black people move forward in any way. So to see people respond to Obama's uh, administration by voting in the worst possible person it's not surprising to me, so um, or to any of the people that I talk to about this stuff on a regular basis. So I don't really 
think about his illegitimacy because it's, it's like, of course, you know, I, I don't, I don't, it's not surprising to me, but what, I just get tired of the reality TV-ism of his presidency and the way that he um, talks about people. You know, he wants the respect of the presidency. He wants the respect of the, of the position, um, but he is an awful person and he is a childlike person mm-hmm. in the way that he communicates with people and the way that he handles big um, anything at all. And so that, that's what sits on my mind is how poorly we look as a country to have this child in the White House and that we have to, I don't know, it feels like we're going to have to like really chug back up this hill to get whatever good reputation America had to get that back. And that's what I think about, like just how awful and how much work we will have to do to overcome his awfulness. Yeah. And what do you, do you think there's going to be a little bit, okay, I, I have the Jeffersons really in my mind right now, so I'm going through a lot. I'm, I'm remembering that I, I remember Billy D. Williams's appearance, because I was swooning over him, but um, I don't remember that a particular episode, but that's, a, that's extremely interesting, the, you should have let me die. Do you think that when this is over, there's going to be a certain element among people who even entertained the views of Steve Bannon, or who, um, you know, that have sat for speeches written by Stephen Miller, a little bit of like a hangover. Like what, it just seems like the country is a little bit demented right now. You know, just, we've just been hearing it for so long and that there's going to be like a feeling like, did we really do that? Maybe a little bit. I think about people who were photographed in like lynching postcards and yeah. stuff like that, that they're there having yeah. their picnic and yeah. stuff like that. And then when, when they're found, someone, you know, reporters look for them so many years later and they're just like, well, it was the time, you know, yeah. and they're a little apologetic about it, but they're just very much like we had to go along with it. That's what we were expected to do. Mm-hmm. And that's whatever. And I think that's what is still going to happen, mm-hmm. you know, past this prologue. I think people are still just going to be like, we just kind of went along with the the flow of everything, and it felt good to, um, I don't know, push against PC stuff, to push against yeah. all this other stuff. It felt, people just really, I think people are really stressed, and being able to be angry is a relief for them. Yeah. I can't figure out, though, if the, anger is an artifact of the Trump campaign. I mean, I remember seeing Bill Clinton um, spoke for Hillary Clinton in a, at a campaign mom, moment in the primary. And he said, I think I'm not angry enough for America right now. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I guess he had been listening more than I had to Trump and the other Republican candidates and Bernie Sanders. But I really was just in this like blissful, I'd just seen hidden figures. I thought the world was just getting, like we would be like refining our idea of what social justice would look like. And that's what it was gonna be from here on in. We still had a lot of work to do, but it was just gonna be this process of this very like almost exquisitely kind of progressive approach to the future. And all of a sudden he was like, there's wars and rumors of wars and anger. And I, I mean, I was actually completely blindsided, and now we describe the country as in shambles and in flames. Um, and it just, was it not that way before? Or, I mean, I don't know. Somehow I feel like we got it injected into our veins that we are now so mad at each other. Um, I mean, there and I'm trying not to get the bug. Anyway. Yeah, there were definitely people who were mad 
at that time, you know, while Hillary Clinton was running her campaign, there were people mad on the right, certainly, because mm -hmm. they had just had eight years of Obama being president. But there were also people mad on the left. You know, there were Black Lives Matter protesters interrupting Bernie Sanders speeches. There were, you know, people advocating, um, you know, the uh, reproductive rights, for instance, like mm -hmm. that fight has not been uh, an inevitable arc toward progress. Mm -hmm. So I think while, yes, there were a lot of ways which in which some people, a lot of us were like lulled into complacency during that era, mm -hmm. I feel like there, there were seeds of anger on the left. And now it's really interesting to see how anger is playing out just to bring it to the 2020 slate yes. here, which we're here to watch today. You kind of see two different interpretations of how angry we should even be at this moment. So there's, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, at some points, Kamala Harris, who are, you know, really uh, evocatively speaking about their vision for a radically changing America mm -hmm. or, or injustice. You know, I don't think Kamala is necessarily in for a radical reshaping of the country, but she definitely talks very passionately about injustice. And uh, there's also Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, who can get that way at some points. Joe Biden definitely yells. I wouldn't consider that him being like angry for the cause. Yeah. But um, Pete Buttigieg has said, you know, I don't want to be fighting for fighting's sake. We have to think about what's on the end of that fight. As if everyone else who, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who's talking about fighting for Medicare for all, isn't also thinking about the thing you do when you actually get Medicare. Anyway, um, there's like the the vision of America that's, you know, a little bit of, well, this is Trump, the Trump era will be contained yeah. and we'll move past it. And we also saw that in the town hall for LGBTQ issues where Joe Biden talked a lot about changing public opinion. And he's mm. like, well, people just need a little more time in order for us to get, you know, full rights and protections for LGBTQ people. People just need a little more time. Look how far we've come. Meanwhile, the people asking him questions were saying things like, I can't use the appropriate bathroom at my school mm. or, you know, my uh, friend is homeless and can't be served in a homeless shelter because Trump took away protections for transgender Americans mm. in homeless shelters. And he's saying, like, just give America a little bit more time. Mm. So, you know, obviously for the women in the race and especially the women of color in the race, there's like a little bit more at stake uh, in terms of seeming angry quote unquote. But I also think there are a lot of really angry people in America. I mean, the anger has animated a lot of the activism that propelled Democrats into Congress in 2018. And, you know, a lot of the reason why women and men are splitting uh, along party lines in a way that hasn't been seen in decades, mm -hmm. like anger is motivating a lot of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is new and part of it is stemming from stuff that was already there before. And you don't, this is very different from the lock him up anger. So, which is, I mean, I just want to say again, that is extremely radical that we have people all across the country, not just booing him, but wanting the president. I interpret lock him up as like a little tongue in cheek. I mean, I know it, it comes from a place of hatred for Trump, which mm -hmm. there's anger there. It but comes from a good place, you mean. Yeah, <laughs> it comes from a truly wholesome place. Um, but I feel like that's a little more tongue-in-cheek. And also, even booing him, like, it's such a childlike thing to do. You were talking about, I feel like it's people meeting Trump's childlike behavior with our own childlike behavior. And also, it's like a feeling of impotence that people have, where, like, 
we can't vote against him yet, so like, I'm gonna, gonna boo him, right. you know? Can't like, cause what yet. else can boo. I do when I see him except boo and yell, lock him up, because it's like a play on words from his, you know, lock her up. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I, well, I think it's a more powerful gesture than that, but I get that. But the, but you think the anger over the like homeless policies toward trans people is that is very different from the lock him up is just as hot. I mean, because I feel like the bathroom issues, we just ended up with bigger fish to fry as much as that has sucked for some individual lives. And just as a nation, we have a catastrophic president who needs to be removed. Now, that doesn't mean I think an incrementalist like Biden or Buttigieg is the better person to remove him. Not at all. But yeah. I just I, I just would like to see a candidate that says, you know, Washington is on fire and our nation is on fire. Do you see that candidate? Has anyone done uh, you a know, good job? I'm amazed at how, how, how little they talk about impeachment. And again, I think they're listening to these like namby-pamby polls that, that's from months ago that don't seem to acknowledge that 51% of America, when was the last time we agreed on this much, <laughs> want him not just impeach, not just, oh, maybe we should open an inquiry and ask some hard questions and enforce those subpoenas, remove from office. I mean, that's amazing. That's like an electrified country. What do you think? Well, I kind of want to go back to what you just said. Maybe I misheard, but like um, the trans bathroom issue yeah. and, and bigger fish to fry. Can you? I know. I know. Yeah. I know I'm in but, dangerous territory. Yeah, because I mean, it's kind of like how many different times are those kinds of issues that affect, particularly affect people of color, Yeah, get pushed to the back until someone's ready to finally talk about it, until someone's ready to finally like move and do, have, and, you know, give action. Um, and that's yep. something that, again, my friends and I, my family and I see all the time, where it's just like, we'll get to that later. But there's so many ways that when, like the first um, panel said, that when you um, have policy that affects black people, that affects people mm-hmm. of color, everyone comes in. There, yes. you know, like it's like Paula Giddens, this black feminist, would, uh, she had a book that was called When and Where I Enter, which was based on a line from Ida B. Wells. And it was about when and where the black woman enters, then the whole race enters with me. And so when you do something that helps one, one marginalized group, everyone else can yes. kind of yes. move forward. So I'm not saying necessarily that there needs to be a hierarchy, but again, it's just kind of like, we're still people, there's still people waiting to be served. And yeah. when will they be served? When will their issues be brought to the table? Yeah. Today is the, um, is it, um, what's today? The Trans Day of Remembrance. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I wonder if that's going to be brought up in the debate tonight mm-hmm. and in, in trans issues. I'll also say half that. of Americans support non-discrimination laws for trans yes. people. Yes. So, and uh, if the Democratic Party isn't willing to fight for that and also mm-hmm. to recognize that there are so many things we haven't done yet and mm-hmm. if they think that, you know, oh, just give it a little time, people will get there, like, that's actually not how progress works. You need yeah. to fight for it. You need to believe in a better tomorrow. I feel like I'm on the debate stage right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, it's, it's a vision of America that is inaccurate Mm -hmm. And that disregards how activist movements have actually been behind a lot of the changes that people applaud the Democratic Party for making, you know, minimum wage and and literally everything. It it hasn't been because politicians Mm -hmm. have done it out of the goodness of their hearts. It's been because they've been pushed by people who were told initially probably that their needs were, you know, we weren't ready to meet them or that they were too radical. 
I mean, I, I think this is right. I, maybe I'm just in my own defense. I want to clarify that I wasn't arguing for incrementalism as much as trying to identify the source of anger. And if Trump, and, and go back to this, is impeachment a kitchen table issue, that if so many people support impeachment, part of the reason they support it or are angry about um, Trump's presidency is that he cheated. Um, and part of that was voter suppression, old fashioned pre-Russian interference cheating, which is, you know, the disenfranchisement of voters. And as Stacey Abrams points out, often voters of color is just such a fundamental issue. So that Trump's illegitimacy, Trump's rise to power on the back of racist tropes are all issues that are, they invoke all the issues that do hurt the most disenfranchised people. And so the anger around that, the anger around his illegitimacy and the anger around his racist policies is also part and parcel of the anger around these other things. And where removing him first is not a bigger fish to fry that is about all of us, but it's more about the people who he's hurt along the way the most. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think all of these activists, you know, for instance, at the LGBTQ panel and everything, like, we're in the bag for impeachment. I don't think yeah. anybody's saying, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like, let's yeah, hold, hold off them, on hold that off. right now. Yeah. Well, um, do you think anyone tonight will bring up, bring up impeachment? Or why hasn't Kamala Harris is a prosecutor? She would have asked great questions. In some ways, I wish she was, if she stays in the Senate, I'll be really happy to have her voice still there. She's, she does some of the best interrogations ever. She's got to have strong feelings about how all these hearings are going down, and yet we don't hear from her about it. Yeah, but I think it goes back to um, the passion that she displays. How mm -hmm. much passion is she allowed to show? Yeah. And, you know, how much anger is she allowed to show? She can be very much, you know, the sharp-tongued auntie. You know, she can yeah. she has that vibe down. But when she, like, if she moves just, a, you know, a hair above that, mm -hmm. then she's going to be shrill. Then she's going to be the angry black woman or whatever. And she's already combating that. So I think she is just trying to be very careful, as careful as she can without completely blowing up her campaign yeah and again she knows that black women are the ones who will hopefully vote for her I mean, that may be part of her target audience and so she has to figure out how she can get us on board because so many of us are very wary of her um, mm -hmm. right now and again I mean there's just a lot of you know different kinds of information about her and her um, record as a prosecutor and everything so people are just unsure so I think she is still walking a very fine line of how she can get to where she needs to be and you know be fun and be you know like I said a little sassy auntie but also let people know that she's serious about everything. You said something backstage, and I think earlier, that is interesting, that, I th that you think that the electorate needs to stop looking to black women to save us. These huge numbers of black women who are almost, almost certainly going to go for the Democratic candidate. But why do you say don't look to black women to save us or make that point? I didn't necessarily say not to. I think people need to, um, you know, people, a lot of people talk this talk of black women will save us and then, but then they don't do the work to help with voter suppression to combat it mm -hmm. they don't do the work to make sure that we are properly getting to um, getting to the polls or things like that or they're trying not to make they're not making sure that there's not all this interference or you know even on a place like social media and like on Twitter we see all these um, bots where people are pretending to be black yes and we <sighs> 
I say we and I'm talking about black people. Um, <laughs> we can tell when someone is not black and pretending to be black. <laughs> because this, uh, I mean, it's, <laughs> um, <laughs> the language choices, just yeah. the kinds of things that they're saying, you know, they'll just pop up and say, I too am black and I feel this way. <laughs> like, no, we, no, that's not going to work, you know. Wait, and, th- and, wait this is really interesting because the first time I was like swarmed by. Um, bots. They were they were all impersonators with well at least they had black female avatars and often said I'm black. Um, but how when did you first notice that phenomenon? Oh, it's been happening for a very long time. I like um, pre-election. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. What's that about? I mean, is it like getting credibility for the left or for like a particular position? These were Bernie Bros. I mean, I don't. I don't. There's definitely a history of people doing that to try to lend legitimacy to right-wing causes or to say like, oh, I'm a black person and I support Donald Trump or or not necessarily Donald Trump, but something that, you know, uh, would it would seem like a more diverse coalition was supporting if there were black people on Twitter saying that they supported it. Does that jive with your Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be someone trying to say, well, you know, my black friend and it's really just somebody that they follow on Twitter. My friend who's black, she said this and then you again it's just somebody that they're following they're following on social media they don't even really know this person it's not it may not even be a real person but this kind of planting of misinformation this kind of planting Mm -hmm. of i don't know just terrible behavior is clearly like um, christina said just a way of legitimizing their efforts and sometimes i mean you know black people are not monolithic you know we are all very diverse there's someone from the bay is very different from me as a southern black woman that kind of thing but we always know when there's like this really it's just it's just it's just a little something that happens in the conversation it lets you know okay you're not a real person and there's no real way to report this is a person pretending to be black i mean twitter has gotten better about that kind of thing but it's been um one of our colleagues at slate rochelle she Mm -hmm. did an um she wrote an article about the ways that people have been pretending to be black and the purpose of that for some reason this reminds me when you say someone wouldn't say i'm a black person so i think this reminds me of adam schiff spelling out that or no i think I think some other commenter spelled out that if you were a witness to bribery, you wouldn't say, um, well, his, his, actually, the parallel was, if you're a witness to a car crash, you wouldn't, you describe how the cars ran into each other, whatever, but you wouldn't say, I think I witnessed vehicular manslaughter. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and there's something about, you know, as an African-American something, I yeah. certainly yeah. support Trump. That is a little suspicious. Um, what, <laughs> what, yeah, sorry, you were, I was going to, interrupting you, Christina. Oh, not at all. I think, speaking of, for white women, um, <laughs> I I know there are a lot of the talk after the 2016 election in feminist communities was about the 53% of white women who voted for Trump. Yep. And I think there were a lot of discussions, especially around the Women's March, about how feminist communities, activist communities were replicating the very racist dynamics that they purported to oppose. Mm. Um, I kind of looked at it like, I don't know if anyone here uses retinol or is like into skincare, but when you start using retinol, they say your skin gets worse before it gets better. Mm. I think for white women, it was like that after the 2016 election, where Mm. all of a sudden a lot of gross shit that they felt like was underneath the surface and we were past that was brought to the surface Mm -hmm. and uh, there were a lot of difficult conversations that had to be had and um, in the 2018 election we saw a 
white women moving away from Republicans. And I mean, TBD, whether that dynamic sticks. Mm -hmm. But I know, you know, for the first time in a long time, white women sort of voted equally for each party and especially white women with college educations were three times more likely to, or rather, yeah, their support, their margin of support for Democrats uh, tripled from 2016 election to the 2018 election. So I feel like there's, uh, I'm not sure if that is necessarily um, related to or completely owing to the conversations among on the left about, you know, race and racism mm-hmm. or whether women were just so turned off by Trump. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if you weren't turned off by Trump before the election, what did he do after he was elected that turned you <laughs> off? I think, oh, yeah. you know, family separation might be one of those things, but, um, you know, can't put my finger on it. Um, but yeah, it, I think... In the 2020 election, a lot of people will be looking to what white women do because they're also, uh, especially white women who didn't go to college, are a demographic that Trump really needs to keep, and they are supporting him and supporting supporting him less and supporting impeachment more. You all have probably read this that that of all the people changing parties, and we'd like to welcome again Max Boot. Michael Cohen, Michael Bloomberg, um, <laughs> lots of people whose, whose uh, minds have been changed uh, better late than never. Um, uh, but that it's, Repu- it's Republican suburban women whose minds are changing, that suburban women are vulnerable, even if they're voting opposite their husbands um, in this next election, they may vote Democrat. What are suburban women a proxy for? Like, are suburban women rich? Are they socially conservative potentially I just don't know what to make of suburban women and I still don't I don't I'm not sure what I think the suburbs are or I if honestly this is, you know, really I think that whole category is like a misnomer because the suburbs of you know New York City are very different from the suburbs of Oklahoma City you know um, I think the demographics of the suburbs are also changing. More and more people of color are moving into the suburbs because cities are getting really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, suburbs, I want to say that the suburbs are changing more than the individual people in the suburbs are changing mm. in terms of you know whatever's going on in their own heads. But yeah, I mean, I think people also... The, the Republican suburban mom or whatever is like the equivalent of the old diner veteran or whatever. It's just ah, like a, a type of person that everyone imagines in their mind as like, uh, this is the voter we need to win and whatever they think, it, you know, so goes the nation. Um, Interesting. I don't quite buy that. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think um, maybe these suburban white women are realizing that when people of color are grossly affected, mm-hmm. um, they're also affected, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of trickles down or up to them. Mm-hmm. So when you have, um, and this is very, just very um, oversimplified and very generalized, but when you have the people that you have come to rely on become fearful of being deported or when you have yeah. people that you can't rely on anymore, I guess that that is, is a troubling thing for them. Also, mm-hmm. I wonder about the effect of the president on masculinity in the home mm-hmm. and how that hmm. how that's affecting the yeah. suburban wives, that kind of stuff. So that's what Let's I would be thinking about. Say more about that because you have, you have like a sixth sense for sort of like, I don't know, we were talking about dating apps 
perhaps earlier, just these like some ways of kind of reading the tea leaves of sort of social and cultural life. How do you think that Trump's model of masculinity may have changed? We have seen some couples, I think, you know, the Scaramucci's quarreled over Trump's presidency and almost or briefly split up over it and other couples that have kind of fallen out over this. It is alarming or maybe alarming to see the man in your life defending Trump or, or defending anything like Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this let's go back, this, this feeling of we have to go back to, you know, when America was great, which also is when, like, you know, men were gone yeah. and women were expected to do something. And they're, you know, not necessarily saying that men are expecting women to just stay at home and make sandwiches all day or anything like that. Yeah. But it's, there's, still, there's still something there, I think, that married couples that are men or women, men and women are experiencing from seeing Trump in the White House or the, you know, the way that people react, the whole, you know, grab him by the crotch. I'm, yeah. I'm censoring. censoring. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And to see the way people react to that and then to find out, you know, if your husband is like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, of course, women are going to be all over him. He's a powerful guy. And yeah. maybe these women are like, oh, so what's going on at your job? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Maybe that's part of it. I don't really know. This is, you know, I just feel like there's something happening in marriage in marriages right now the way that people are changing their minds about their husbands and wives and mm-hmm. the you know political affiliations and things like that that I, some kind of way i'm not a sociologist could be traced <laughs> back to trump in the election it certainly made us feel the squeeze of patriarchy more than ever that is a one way to put it <laughs> 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 